recite the Apostles' Creed together. If you have uh, been with us the last month or so, we have been doing a study, actually longer than that, through the five solas. This is called what we call foundations, the essentials of what we believe and why we believe it. We've been uh, working now for the last month through the Apostles' Creed and I thought to myself a few weeks ago, is this appropriate for Christmas? And the answer to that is absolutely yes, because of some of the affirmations that we are making. Now, you see the Apostles' Creed, the first part of it. You can follow along on the slide, or it's written in your worship guide. If you care to follow along, a couple of things by way of explanation. I've said this before, and hopefully it will help you because I still get some questions about this. The Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds, if not the oldest extra-biblical creed, helps us to do a couple of things. It helps us to deal with error, which there has been and there will be always error in the church, and it also helps our own personal and therefore corporate spiritual growth. Another thing that I want you to know as we read through this, and this is the older version of it. I tried a younger version of it uh, several weeks ago, but we're going back to the old, you might call it the King James Version, of the Apostles' Creed. And so there are words that may look a little bit unfamiliar to you. Now, this is to be spoken by believers. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, at least you can look and follow along with us. Hopefully, you would be able to say by the end of the message today that you do believe these things from the heart. Again, don't get hung up on words, particularly in the portions like he descended into hell. That's going to be for an upcoming message that we will try our best to get a handle on that, and particularly When you come to the part that says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, had a conversation with someone even this morning. We are not affirming that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? That's a small C that you'll find in the Apostles' Creed. Very, very important. It simply is a word that for years has meant the universal. Church of Jesus Christ, the one made up of all believers from all places of all time that will last into eternity. Now, with those as caveats, Christian, let's affirm together the Apostles' Creed from our hearts. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, I thank you that we can affirm these incredible words. And now as we look to Scripture to uh, bite off one small chunk of this incredible creed, the I believe statement, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into the things that we will be talking about. Lord, we pray at this time of year when I hope we have a laser focus on the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ, that you will help us now today to understand what conceived by the Holy Spirit means just a little bit better so that we can look and we can relate to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to give his life so that we might live and not die. We thank you for this, and we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, and we're going to look at the passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 1. So if you turn there, Luke chapter 1, we're going to work our way through the passage of Scripture that um, we have before us. I want to show you something. There's a quote here by R.C. Sproul that is in your worship guide, but it also is on the slide in front of you. One of the things that I'm convinced about, and you know I didn't grow up as a Baptist saying the Apostles' Creed. You probably didn't either. We always thought that that was more for liturgical churches, but the older I've gotten, the more I see the need for us to together corporately and then day by day individually for us to affirm things because every time that we do, every time we come to confront something, we need to know what we believe. And so that's why we're doing this study on the Apostles' Creed. One of the things that you just did when you affirmed the Apostles' Creed is that you said this. You said, I stand against. I am rejecting the false cultural narratives that are all around us. Now, obviously this can be expanded to a number of different countries, but we live right here in this day, in this time, in this country. And if you have not realized it, there are others around you, family members and friends, who do realize that there are false cultural narratives that are saying to you that we can find the meaning and the purpose to life through things that the culture offers. One of the things that our culture is absolutely famous, or maybe I could say infamous for, is this ism called individualism. We really do believe that we can solve our own problems given the right resources. We really do believe that, that given the things that we need, that we can figure out our purpose, our significance, 
in life. Individualism is a false narrative. There's another false narrative, and boy, do we see it now, and we're going to see it all the way through to election time. Please listen very carefully. It's called nationalism. Now, folks, you've been with me through several election cycles. And you've heard me say certain things about how the scriptures should inform our votes. And you know further that we affirm here at this church that we are pro-life and that we are pro-God's plan for marriage and other situations. Now, I personally believe other things are very important, but those two alone are huge. When you go to the party platforms and you see what different political parties believe, again, that should inform your vote. But if you and I believe that the answer to the greatest problems that we face will be found in a political party, then folks, we're wrong. That's nationalism, and we see it in virtually every country, that that political system or those political parties And by the way, all of the political parties say that they have the answer to all of our problems. And if we buy into that, folks, that is a false cultural narrative. There's another one at this time of year. I'm just going to, and it's, you know, spell check caught me on this. It's not really a word. It's another ism, though, Christmas-ism. Now, I love Christmas. I've told you that before. I love Christmas. Christmas trees, I love all of the trappings and everything like this. But you know that Christmasism is not the reason for the season. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a false narrative that we hear all the time. One of my favorite authors, I'm going to date myself as far as a composer, is David Foster. Great. Just everything that he's done. And back in the early 90s, he he did this Christmas album, and on it was this incredible song that a uh, performer by the name of Natalie Cole, anybody remember Natalie Cole? Oh, sing almost like her dad. In fact, she, well, anyway, they did some songs after he had died, put together some videos, all the rest of that. But she did this song. Amy Grant came out and did it later. It was called Grown Up Christmas List. That song, it's, here's some of the narrative that we hear. Do you remember me? I sat upon your knee. I wrote to you with childhood fantasies. Well, I'm all grown up now. I still need help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart still can dream. Now, here's her grown-up Christmas list. Here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list, not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives torn apart. Then wars would never start. Time would heal the heart, and everyone would have a friend, and right would always win, and love would never end. 
Oh, this is my grown-up Christmas list. Now, all of those are wonderful sentiments, but never once in this song is anything but the spirit of Christmas given as an answer to those wishes on that list. To think that just a Christmas greeting, and I think we ought to do it, Merry Christmas, I encourage you to do that when you go into the stores. But if all we do is to get and to give a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, that is a Christmasism, sentimental cliches, baby Jesus. And that's why you've seen this quote up here for the entire time that I've been introducing this whole subject that we're going to look at in just a few minutes. R.C. Sproul said it like this. It's just a few sentences, but it is powerful. The overwhelming concern of the New Testament is not, and we can wax sentimental about this, folks, is not the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God. The Christian faith stands or falls with the Incarnation. So with that in mind, let's go to Luke chapter 1 in verses 26 through 38. We're just going to walk through this, and I've got several backup scriptures to show you. And uh, I, I, frankly, I don't know that I've ever studied this specific subject before Encountering a study on the Apostles' Creed. Let's, let's just start with uh, verses 26 and 27. And maybe you've uh, not read this in a while, but it'll be good for us to read it again. It says this, In the sixth month, the sixth month of what? Isn't it interesting that we can read the Bible and we can read through these passages of Scripture? I mean, we read this every Christmas time, don't we? But... It says in the sixth month, and we never even really think about that. In the sixth month of what? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, that's a fascinating backstory in itself. But let me read the, the, the two verses, and, and then we'll start talking about this a little bit. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Again, a fascinating backstory. It mentions the name Gabriel. Does anybody know who Gabriel was? He was an angel. In fact, he is mentioned as one of three archangels. Who are the other two? Michael, okay, he's mentioned in the scriptures. And then who was the other archangel who fell from heaven? Lucifer. There are others, depending on if you get into Catholic theology and all the rest of that, but those are biblically the three primary archangels. Now, I think it's interesting when it says he was sent from God. This is not the only appearance, appearance of Gabriel. In fact, in the Bible, he appears two other times. The other time in this chapter was to, to Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband. And if you go back, we're not going to read all of that, 
the backstory there, but the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth were older. They were beyond child-rearing age. And so Zechariah announced, you're going to have a son. Now, he could do this, and in fact, if you want to see the other mention of the name Gabriel, you just back up to verse 19, where he identified himself. He, has said, he said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And so he was sent from God. He stood in the presence of God. He heard the counsel of God, the plan of God. So Gabriel was sent by God to announce to Zechariah that he and Elizabeth were going to get pregnant and have a baby. This was a miracle. The same kind of miracle as we're going to talk about in just a second, but it was miraculous because she was old beyond the age of childbearing. So he was sent to the city of Galilee, and he was sent specifically to a virgin, and that is a very, very clear reference. Three times in this passage, Mary is referred to as a virgin. By the way, the only other reference uh, to Gabriel in the Bible is in the book of Daniel. When he was sent from God to give interpretations to Daniel. So we see these three appearances. He was sent from God. So already we have seen in the past couple of weeks that God the Father, who is the sovereign creator, is personally involved in his creation. You go all the way back to creation, God had a plan. And when our, our first parent, Adam, blew it, believed that he could act independently of God, stand on his own. He plunged the world, the cosmos, into sin and darkness. But even there, God says, I have a plan. And so in, in the curses that he gave to the serpent and then to, to uh, the, the man and to the woman, here is the, the first inkling of jumping forward until the fullness of time what he was going to do. Look at it. He said, I, he said to Eve, I will put enmity between the serpent, rather, between you and the woman and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed, her offspring. Now, to whom was he referring? He was referring to Jesus. How do we know? He, just read the next part. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So in the New Testament, it says, in the fullness of time. I don't know what all that means. Could it mean it was the converging of a lot of, of, of different situations, the socioeconomic, the political situation, the fact that the Greek language was, was the, the, the standard language of the whole? I don't know all of that. But all I know is that when the time was full, God entered in, and he started to work the plan that he'd had from, the Bible says, the foundation of the world. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's move on. There's a lot here. But we need to, to move on now. It says that he came to Mary, but it mentions specifically his father.
father, Joseph. Did you get that? Mary was a virgin. He was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And this is so important. We can't overlook this. Of the house of David. I I am simply amazed when we look at the promises of Scripture written thousands of years before, we see God weaving together and perfectly answering in Jesus Christ every prophecy. You see, Jesus, to be the Messiah, had to be from the Davidic line. He had to be a direct descendant of David, and he was. Through his adoptive father, Joseph, he was in the messianic line, and therefore he was able to fulfill the promises made to David. We see this down in 32, some of the descriptions of Jesus, the son of Mary, but it goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7 of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So we see from Joseph's point of view how important it was for this to be fulfilled. But we also see that Gabriel came to to, to Mary, who was a virgin, again three times. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. We're not going to get into all of the details, the the discussions of, uh, of this particular verse. Just suffice it to say that when we come to the New Testament, the absolute truth is that Mary was a virgin. But it was foretold in Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we're going to talk more about Mary next week. She's conceived of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that in a minute. But we're going to talk more about the person of Mary next week. But three times in this passage, twice she is referred to as a virgin, and then once she says, I am a virgin. Among other things, now get the the picture here. She was most likely about a 14-year-old young lady. 15, 16 maybe. But one of the things that this meant was that she was morally pure. Second thing that it means, there have been all kinds of different interpretations of these things, particularly from liberal theologians, so-called. But it's important to understand that she was not already pregnant. That's why she's called a virgin. Again, this quote, it's in your worship guide, but I put it up on the screen. The scriptures teach nothing less, Al Mohler said, than the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Indeed, without such a birth, there is no gospel. A Christian who doesn't believe in the virgin birth is in eternal eternal peril for the one in whom he believes is not the one 
who is testified in the scriptures. So this is vital. The angel Gabriel sent the Virgin Mary who was betrothed to Joseph. Let's read on. Verses 28 through 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Now, let me just stop right there. In every case where Gabriel shows up, it, it doesn't, it just alludes to it here when he says, Don't be afraid. People were terrified. Zechariah was terrified. Daniel, it says, was so terrified by the vision of this one who came to him that he was sick for days. It's no small thing. And so that's why he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, I just want to make this point. Next week, we're going to talk more about Mary. And, and, and something that we will try to do is we're going to try to correct some wrong theology that is out there. Primarily, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church, who has a whole doctrine of Mariology, and I don't know how else to say it, Mariolatry, the worship of Mary. And so we, we need to come back next week and talk more about this. But I just want you to see the fact that and here is an application. As we read through the Christmas story and we look at this life, the life of Mary, and, and Gabriel said twice, he says, you're favored by God. You're favored by God. And I think that sometimes there is something within us that says, I could never be a Mary. You ever thought about that? Sometimes we encourage our kids, be, be a Daniel, be a Mary. Let's face it, look at the kind of person she was. We'll talk about that more again next week. But I want you to step back and think about that. For you who say, I could never be a Mary, don't misread The thing that I just read to you, these two verses, reveals that Mary had not earned this favor with God. That word favor, highly favored one. You have found favored, favor with God. It's the same word that is used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 to describe us. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious favor, which he has bestowed on us in the beloved. Look, we do not earn or deserve the favor, the grace of God, and neither did Mary. That's why it's called grace. Sometimes, again, we miss this in the Christmas story. My guess is, even Nazareth, even though Nazareth was a small town, my guess is there were other virgins in Nazareth. Okay, are you tracking with me? 
And God could have just as easily chosen another one of those virgins to prepare to be the mother of the Messiah. The reason I say this and we stop and we park on this is that all that we have, folks, let's face it, all that you and I have in our salvation is through grace. We have not deserved it at all. Grace eliminates all boasting. In fact, I find it interesting that a little bit later on, if you'll flip over and you'll see uh, in verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary knew she was a sinner and that she needed a Savior. Well, with that in mind, let's look at the rest. This tells the story, and here's where we are today. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, verses 31 through 38. And behold, Gabriel is talking now to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Matthew adds, for he will save his people from his sins. Five things about Jesus. I I think we're going to get to these next week. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit your answer, Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Just a couple of things as we wrap this up. Gabriel reveals the plan of God. It's just a matter of fact. You're going to conceive. You're going to bear a son. His name is Jesus, Yeshua, which means salvation. The five descriptions all balled together point to the fact that this baby is going to be the promised Messiah. Nothing less than the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh. Now, I want you to see what Mary does. She asks a question. But Mary accepts God's description of the baby and then asks the question, basically paraphrased as this, I'm, I'm confused. How can a virgin conceive? Now what's amazing here is that up in the backstory I told you about Zechariah, he asks almost the same question, but we are given some insight. With Zechariah, it was doubt. And that's why the angel Gabriel said, okay, from now until John the Baptist is born, you're going to be able, uh, unable to speak 
because you did not believe. With Mary, there's no disbelief. She is simply asking the question, and Gabriel responds with as much as God allows. Here's his answer. How's this going to be? The Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will overshadow you. That is a figurative expression for divine intervention. Okay, did you get that? That is a figurative expression for divine intervention. Now, I don't know, but my guess is that Mary knew at least enough of the Old Testament scriptures that when Gabriel used these concepts, he, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if she was thrown all the way back to creation. One thing evolutionists have not been able to tell us is where did the stuff come from so that everything could be created? The Bible explains it matter-of-factly. God brought something from out of nothing. And there were at least two others. We don't find the other one until the New Testament but we find that their third person of the Trinity was very active in creation. The creation of the cosmos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I, I just wonder if Mary went back and remembered that. I wonder if she remembered in Exodus, the building of the tabernacle and when, when God came and, and he sat down and he overshadowed the tabernacle, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here's why this is so important. Don't speculate about the mechanics. There are people who have and they've ended up in the wrong places. All we know is that Gabriel said, God, the Holy Spirit, will come upon you and will overshadow you. And just as he hovered over the, the face of the deep and he brought something from nothing, and just as God took a clay sculpture and breathed into it the Holy Spirit, the breath of life, and he became a living person in Adam, and just as God raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, and just as he quickens you and me, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, and he breathes life into us. All of those things are impossible situations, folks. 
Mary might have thought, then that is how it's going to happen. Now, this is something that I don't know that I've ever really thought about. I don't know that you have either. And it goes back to something that we said earlier. If the Apostles' Creed had only said born of a virgin, would something have been left out? And the answer is absolutely yes. As far as I can tell, Mary's pregnancy, the gestation of Jesus in the womb of Mary, and his birth were like any other person in this room. The thing that set it apart was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so important. There's a third quote that I want to point out, and I just put it up on the screen. You can read it in your worship guide. And this is why it's important that we understand these things for salvation and redemption. Only as the Holy Spirit takes the place of the human father in Jesus' conception, can it be true that the one conceived is both fully God and fully man? Christ must be both God and man to atone for sin, but for this to occur, he must be conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a human virgin. No one else in the history of the world, think about this, is conceived by the Spirit and born of a virgin mother. Therefore, Jesus alone qualifies to be Savior. And to verify it, he says, look, nothing is impossible with God. In fact, there's one miracle already on the way, and his name is John the Baptist. And even though it's improbable, it is not impossible, for all things are possible with God. So what does that mean for you and me today? It means that just as Adam and Eve in the garden, we've all defected from God. We have acted like God is not in charge and we are in charge of our own lives. And you know what this does? It sends us on a frantic search for significance, a search for purpose. As long as we live independently from Him, we will never find it because that is sin and it has left us in a huge mess. But God has the answer. It's called the incarnation. That's what it starts with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's where it begins. But that's not where it ends. Because this baby was born, grew to manhood, lived a perfect life, and then died on Calvary's cross. For those of us who have sinned in the likeness of Adam, And if you are here today and you've never 
understood the reality of your own sin and the reality, and we'll see this later on in the Apostles' Creed, that he is coming to judge the living and the dead. He will come again. We need to meet him as Savior and as Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? And before we sing a final song, I want to pray and then I want to say one more thing and then we will sing that final song and have the benediction. Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would take the reality of the incarnation, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that you would make him very real to us today. And I pray that even if we've never considered the importance, the impact of what it means to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, that you would help us to dwell on that and know that that is a truth that we cannot ignore. Because it is only through that that Jesus can die for our sins and bring us to eternal life with you, our Heavenly Father. So Lord, I thank you for this and pray that as we enter into this Christmas season, now we've already done it, but the, the reality of the message of Jesus coming into the world would strike our hearts and change us eternally. So Father, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.